Obviously, we got some guys who are uh, still in mourning over the election, uh, or they're out protesting, one of the two. So, well, this is our last week, um, and then we're going to take a break. But uh, as a matter of fact, I'll just go ahead and tell you, um, this is going to be our series starting up in January. We'll start the second week, the second Thursday of January. I think that's the 12th, and it's called Immortal Invisible, and it's going to be a study on the uh, providence of God, okay? And just if you want to get prepared for it, the main book that we're going to use is the book of Esther. Yes, it's a book with a woman's name. And the reason we're going to use the book of Esther, you may not know this, but the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned. And yet, if you read the book of Esther, which I've been doing over the last two months, it's, you see God all throughout that book. And it's, it's, again, it's an appropriate study for where we are as a country, because sometimes it feels like God's not there. Where are you? What have you done? Why have you forsaken us? And yet, God has, he's always there. So he is provident, he's sovereign, and so we're going to use that as kind of our main text, but then we're going to weave in other passages, other uh, books of the Bible to help us get a better grasp on what is the providence of God, what is the sovereignty of God. So that's going to start January 12th and uh, take us through the spring, So just so you know. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to look at the last part of 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, so open up your Bibles. We're going to start in uh, verse 6, which we somewhat covered last week, but we're going to pick it up because it fits in with this context. He writes, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then he wraps up with a kind of a closure. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men and uh, for this opportunity to come together, study your word together. And I pray that as we wrap up First uh, Peter, that, Father, we would uh, really understand what you have called us to, that it's, it's far greater than sometimes we grasp, that we have been called to glory. We've been called to a future with you, and that it's hard to understand, it's hard to get our minds around it, and yet it's a reality, and we need to think about it, we need to look forward to it, and that, Father, as we live in this world with all that's going on, help us to understand that there is some, something far greater, something far better coming for us, and that we can not only hope in it, we can be assured of it. So this morning as we wrap up, just bring this stuff alive, help us to apply it to our lives that we might live with our eyes on the future 
so that it might impact the way we live our lives right here and now. Again, thank you for these men. Thank you for Mark and his faithfulness every Thursday morning to come and make breakfast for us. We give you this time together, the time around the tables in just a few minutes, and we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So the title for this uh, lesson this week is the, the Call to Glory. And we've been talking about calling for the last 10 weeks. And in the wrap-up of this particular passage, this particular chapter, um, the verse I want to concentrate on is verse 10. And he says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So for five chapters, over ten weeks, Peter has been reinforcing the idea that you have been called. You've been called into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You are a child of God, a son of God. You're an heir of the kingdom of God. You have a place reserved for you in his kingdom. And you have the Holy Spirit. There's so many ramifications. But the one thing he's going to close with is this idea of that you've been called to glory. The ultimate objective of our calling is glory, our glorification, our future glorification. And so that's how he's going to wrap it up this morning. And I think sometimes we forget about that. We forget about the outcome. We forget about the future glorification. We know there's a heaven. We, we know that uh, we're going to get redeemed, restored bodies. We're not sure exactly what they're going to look like. Some of us are looking more forward at forward to that than others, but we don't really fully grasp, I think, the significance of this. And I think that's why he wraps up this entire letter by bringing home this idea of glory, eternal glory, um, heaven. And, and I think what he's trying to get you and me to understand is that the reward we're really seeking is future-oriented. We, we talked about this briefly last week when he talked about um, elders and the idea that our reward, if we want our reward, reward now, we miss the point. If, in other words, we want accolades, pats on the back, good job, you're a wonderful guy, you're so spiritual. If we want that now, we can get that now, but we miss out on the reward that's to come, that, that reward that he wants to give us. And so the idea of living for a future reward is all throughout the book, but he summarizes the book with the idea, keep your eyes on the goal, on the prize, on the glory yet to come. So he says, when the God of all grace will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So I want to take a look at what, what do those words mean? And why does he use these four words to remind you that there's a day coming? Because he says, when, when the grace of God will himself, you know, he will, through his grace, his mercy, his unmerited favor, he's going to do something pretty significant. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's future. It's, we get it partially here, but we got to keep in mind that it's going to happen in the future. So what do these words mean? Well, restore in the Greek is to mend. It's, the, it's a word that was used of mending nets. Something's broken, you fix it. Something's got a problem, you come up with a solution. So you're fixing something that's broken. So he's going to restore. Not only is God going to restore you and give you a new body, a body that's free from pain, free from sickness. If you've got cataracts, you're not going to have cataracts. If you're bald, you'll probably have hair. At least I'm praying for that. Uh, if you're 
overweight, you're going to probably be skinny. Again, I don't know what we're going to look like, uh, but we're not going to have sin. We're not going to have pain. We're not going to have sorrow. We're going to restore. He's going to restore creation. He's going to restore things back to the way he originally designed them to be. So this idea of fixing what's broken, God's going to do that. You know, you look again, look at the world today. The world is broken. You know, you look at the news and you see, you know, the protests, you see people burning Trump in effigy. And I don't know who you voted for. I don't really care who you voted for, but the, this world is in, in trouble and he's going to fix it. He's going to fix this world. And we got to keep that in mind. He's going to restore things back to their original state, pre-fall, pre-sin. And, and that's hard for us to grasp, right? It's hard for us to understand a world without sin because we've grown up in a world with sin. It's hard for us to understand a body without sin because we wake up every morning with a body that's racked with sin and we struggle with sin. But just imagine a, a body, a life without sin, without temptation to sin. That's what he's saying. God's going to make you, me, the world what it ought to be. And only he can do it. So what's Peter telling you and I? We've got to live with that in mind. He says he's going to confirm. The Greek word there is to make stable. See, we live in instability, right? You know, right before the election, what was happening to the markets? They were unstable. As the election went on over, over Tuesday night, what happened to the markets? They got more unstable. And, and there's this instability, financial instability, um, there is emotional instability, racial instability. There's all kinds of instability, but God's going to fix that. He's going to put things back to the way they were supposed to be, set them back into their correct order. Again, other ideas, of, he's going to fix it. And it's the idea of rendering constant and reliable. See, nothing's constant right now. The only thing constant right now is inconsistency. Is, is, nothing's consistent. Nothing is stable, yet God's going to fix that. God's going to confirm that. He's going to strengthen. He's going to make strong. He's going to take what is weak, and he's going to make it strong, back to the way it was meant to be, permanent and unchanging. See, again, think about your life. Think about all your relationships. Everything has so much impermanence and has so much change involved into it. It's, you can't rely on it. It's in, unstable. The weather's unstable, the culture's unstable, finances are unstable, governments are unstable, and yet God's going to fix that. And I love this from 1 Corinthians. Paul says, speaking of our bodies, I did a funeral this last week, and, and I used this passage. It says, our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in what? Brokenness. Why? Because they're dead. But they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they, they will be raised as spiritual bodies. See, God's going to take what's broken and he's going to fix it. He's going to take what is impermanent and he's going to give it a permanence. We're going to get glorified. We're going to get new bodies. He goes on in chapter 15. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. See, that's the victory over the grave. We're all going to die in this lifetime at some point unless the lord returns we're all going to die but we're going to get bodies in our future eternal life that will never die they're permanent bodies that will never die and this idea of establishing us permanence establishment 
The Greek word there is to, to lay a foundation that is firm, solid. Again, everything in this life is unstable. It's, you can't rely upon it. You just you live with this idea of instability and un, unreliability. But yet, what is God going to do? He's going to make it unchanging, lasting. It's going to last forever, stable, reliable. You can count your life on it. You can count your eternal life on it. And over in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, though the rain comes, he's telling this story, this analogy of building a house, and one builds on solid foundation, one builds on the sand, and he says, though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. It's the same word, therefore, established. See, the day's coming, and he's trying to remind us the day's coming when Everything will be firm. Everything will be established. The winds will come. The torrents may come. But you will be fine. Why? Because of what God has in store for you. I love the New Living Translation back in chapter 1. Because this is not new for Peter to bring this up. He brought it up in the very first chapter. He says, we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. So all the way back in chapter 1, what was Peter telling you and I? He's telling us, hey, there's something reserved for you. There's an inheritance kept in heaven for you. It's pure. It's undefiled. It's beyond the reach of change and decay. See, here, everything's within the reach of change and decay. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what you're, what's going to happen to your 401k. You don't know what's going to happen to your investments. You don't know what's going to happen over the next four years. Nobody knows except God. But there's a day coming when when we receive our inheritance, it's beyond the reach of change and decay. And he says, through your faith, faith in him, faith in his promises, God is protecting you by his power until when? Until you receive this salvation, your glorification, ready to be revealed in the last day for all to see. So back in chapter one, he brings it up. Now in chapter five, he brings it up again. Going back to the future, our future reward. So he uses these four words, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish, and that's all part of his calling on your life. The, the whole series has been called The Calling, but the real heart of it is you have been called to that, to that future, to that assurance that he will restore. He will confirm. He will strengthen. He will establish. And if we don't think about that, and if we certainly don't believe in that, or we don't remind ourselves of that, we will live with fear. We will live with instability. We will live with doubt. We will live with lack of joy, lack of peace. So why does he end it this way? Because he wants them to move forward in confidence. And so do we. We need to move forward in confidence. So... He moves into the next section, and he said, with that in mind, the future in mind, if you know that that's true, if you believe that that's true, he says, so humble yourselves. Your translation may have the word, therefore. It's a transition. He says, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Now, that's a famous verse. It's, it's one that many people memorize. We love that verse. But keep it in its context. What's been the context throughout this whole book of 1 Peter? Suffering. 
doing the will of God, obeying the will of God, living according to the will of God, and as a result of doing that, suffering for it. So don't lift this out of its context. The context is doing the will of God, suffering for it. And he says, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up. The idea of humility here is is to literally submit yourself, lower yourself under the power and the will of God. See, when, when I have suffering that comes into my life, suffering of any kind, it could be suffering for stupidity, it could occasionally be suffering for doing what is right and godly, but whatever kind of suffering comes in, I hate it and I try to do everything in my power to get out from under it. But what he says is submit to God, his will, his authority, and trust him, especially when it's related to your suffering. Do it willingly and gladly. Why? What did we learn over the last few weeks? That God has a purpose for your suffering. God uses suffering to perfect you, to make you more Christ-like. So trust Him. Trust His power. Trust His provision. Trust His providence. And we'll talk more about that starting in January. God knows what He's doing. You may not get it. You may not understand it. You might not even like it, but you can trust God. Why? Because He's got your future in store. He's got your best interest at heart. And so trust Him. In the context of suffering, humble yourselves, come under his power, trust him for what he's doing. So what I feel like Peter's telling you and I is we've got to humble ourselves under the suffering that is coming from the hand of God. Now that's hard, isn't it? First of all, it's hard to understand God bringing suffering into my lives because we have this singular image of God as all loving. And God is all loving. And sometimes the way he loves us is allowing and even bringing suffering into our lives because he knows that suffering is going to produce endurance and patience and reliance upon him. I know when I suffer, I tend to pray better, pray more, pray harder. I tend to rely on him more than I rely on myself because my tricks aren't working anymore. And so suffering is his means to draw us closer to him, make us more reliant upon him. And he's saying, so humble yourself. Come under it, willingly, gladly. Remember we looked at that idea of welcoming suffering like a guest in your home? Hey, come on in. I know why you're here. You've been sent by God, and I know you have good things for me. Come on in. Instead of rejecting them like somebody you don't want in your home. We're to submit ourselves to the care of God. That's what it means by humble yourselves. Under what? The mighty hand of God. So give all your worries and cares to God. Man, what, a, what an appropriate verse for right now. What an appropriate verse as we enter into January in the next four years. Give all your worries and cares to God. Anybody got any worries and cares today? Everybody does. But again, what's the context? The context is suffering for doing good. When you do good, when you do what is right, when you do the will of God, you will suffer for it. It is part and parcel, comes with a territory. And he says, as a result, when you do suffer, give all your worries and cares to God. He's not saying you're not going to have any worries, you're not going to have any cares. He's just saying when you get them, give them to God. Why? Because he is mighty. He is providential he knows what he's doing and you can trust him so give all those worries and cares to him all the worries all the fears all the anxiety that are associated with doing the will of god 
doing what is right, doing what is holy. So as you live the Christian life and you, you attempt to get into his word and live out his word and obey his word, guess what? You're going to suffer. And when you suffer, take all the fears that come with that. Well, I could lose my job. I, I could lose my friends. I don't know what's going to happen. Take all of that and give it back to him and say, you know what? I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do what you tell me to do, and I'm going to trust you with the results. That's what he's trying to tell us. And when we do this, when we humbly submit, it's an extension of humility. This idea of giving him your cares is an extension of humility. Because here's the reality. Worry is a form of pride. How? See, when you begin to worry, what's the first thing you start to do? Okay, how can I fix this? Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do about my finances. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll do this. I'm going, to, I'm going to borrow some money. I'm going to you know, get another credit card. I'm going to, and you start coming up with solutions. And that is a form of pride because you think you know better than God. So when you worry, when you have anxiety, if you don't take them to God, where are you going to take them? You're going to take them here or are you going to take them into the world and say, okay, what do I do? How do I fix this? And God's saying, no, 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 no. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Give me all your fears and worries. Trust me and watch me work. See what I can do. And, and he will work. Why? Because he cares about you. See, at the end of the day, guys, this is what this is all about. Many of us really don't think God cares for us. That he's hacked at us, that he's, he's displeased with us, that we haven't done enough for him, we, we don't tithe enough, we don't pray enough, we don't read the Bible enough, we're not godly enough, and, and God's not happy with us. But he tells you, God cares for you. Give him all your worries and cares because he cares for you. He really does care for you. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. He loves me, which blows my mind. And he loves me, what? In spite of me. And he loves you in spite of you. So take all your cares to him. And he says, at the right time, and this is key, at the right time, whose time? God's time. Not my time, not your time. At the right time, he will what? Lift you up. See, where I get crossways with God is when my timing and his timing don't match. How often is that? All the time. My timing never seems to match God's timing. I want it to happen now, and I have very clear instructions for him how I want it to happen. And I tell him, this is what I want, this is when I want it, and dadgummit, do it. What are you waiting on? Who, who else are you helping that you need? Drop them and come help me. And what does he say? He will lift you up. At the right time, he will lift you up. He will do what he needs to do, how he needs to do it. And what this reminds me of is over in 1 Thessalonians. He's telling people, Christians, don't panic. Don't worry. He says, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we'll be with the Lord forever. I think what he's saying here, he's going to lift you up. He's going to exalt you. He's talking about you're going to be with him. See, I want it now. I want the fix now. I want my problem fixed now. I want joy now. I want peace now. I want comfort now. And he says, you know what? Just do what I tell you to do. You're going to probably suffer for it. You're going to have worry and anxiety because of it. Give that to me. And you know, in the right time, I'm going to send my son back. And I will lift you up. I will exalt you. I will confirm you. I will establish you. 
I will do all those things for you. But we got to keep our minds on there's a better day coming. And while we may struggle in this life, and we will struggle in this life, we have the hope, the assurance, the promise of God that there's a day coming when we will be lifted up. We will be restored. So what do we do in the meantime? And this is where we are, right? We're living in the meantime. We're living in the gap, the gospel gap. We've been saved. Someday we're going to be glorified. We're stuck in the middle. We're having to live here on this earth with all the junk that flows with it. And he says, what do we do? Here's what he tells you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, gosh, I didn't need to be told that. I already knew that. But he's just telling you reality. In the meantime, you're not in heaven yet. You haven't been glorified yet. You haven't been confirmed, established. None of that has happened yet. You're on your way there. So in the meantime, you've got to be what? Sober-minded. We've talked about this from before. It's spiritual alertness. Living spiritually alert. You are a spiritual being with a spiritual future, and you need to live spiritually minded. Always alert. Always thinking. Using sound judgment. Where do we get sound judgment from? From the Word of God. You're going to be tempted every day of your life to make really dumb decisions that sound wise, that sound logical, that sound like they make sense, but they're from the world and they're not from the Word of God. So you need to live spiritually alert, thinking about what's going on. Look at the world through the eyes of God. What does He see? We look at, you know, it's amazing to me with, with what, what's happened uh, since Tuesday night. Has the panic gone away? No. There's still people wringing their hands. Just look at Facebook. You know, those whose candidate lost are wringing their hands and they're angry. Those whose candidates won are trying to be happy and think that things are going to be better, but they're really not sure that things are going to be any better at all. Everybody's still in a panic. Everybody's wondering what's going to happen. Nobody knows. And we need to look through that and say, okay, what do we know? Our God's in control. What do we, what do we know that despite... What's going to happen over the next four years, good, bad, indifferent? Our God is working his plan to perfection. And we've got to trust him. We have to have soundness of judgment. So be sober-minded. He says, be watchful. Stay awake. Don't get lulled into sleep. Don't get apathetic. Don't get bored. Don't anesthetize yourself with entertainment and with the things of this world. Stay spiritually alert. Because guess what? You're always under attack. And if you don't believe that, he's going to tell you why you're always under attack. You have an adversary, right? He says he's the devil. He's real. I, you may not think he's real. If you don't think the devil's real, you may not be a believer. I mean, you really may not be because if you're a believer and you're living for Christ and you're trying to obey his word, you will know for certain there's a devil because he'll attack you every stinking day of your life. Have you ever met him personally? No. But he's real. And he, he attacks. He said, he's telling you it's, spiritual warfare is real and it's constant. The only time the devil lets up on you and I is when we don't pursue the will of God. If you're not in the Word, if you don't pray, if you're living worldly, if you're living as if you don't know Christ, he's happy as a clam. And you can, you can come to church every day of your life. You can be in a small group. You can come to this Bible study, but if you're not going to apply what you learn, if you're not going to live out your faith in everyday life, he loves you sitting in that worship service. He loves you singing hymns. He loves you singing contemporary worship songs, whichever service you go to. He loves all of that. But if you're, as long as he can have you religious 
Have at it. But as soon as you get serious about your faith, he will attack you with a vengeance. It's real. And there's three main adversaries. He brings up one, but I just want to remind you that the Bible teaches us that you have three adversaries against you, three strikes against you. Here they are, the world, the flesh, and the enemy, the devil. That's the one he mentions in this passage. Here's what's really interesting about these three. You've heard about these before. The world is all around us. It's the domain that's under the control of, the influence of Satan. The world attacks you, and what's the antidote to the attack of the world in your life? The body of Christ. If you're not in the body of Christ, depending upon the body of Christ, and involved in the body of Christ, the world will overwhelm you. That's why you should be concerned about your kids not being involved in a local church. My adult children, as they've gotten married and as they've moved on, they've all had to wrestle with, you know, we don't know if we really need to be plugged into a local church. And I'm like, man, wake up and smell the coffee. You've got to have the body of Christ. You need the fellowship of other believers because it's the anecdote. It's the protection against the attack of the world. Because if you don't have the body of Christ, if you don't have godly friends, what will you do? You'll seek worldly friends. And that will drag you down. It's, it's part of what we face. How about the flesh? We know we have a sin nature. Every guy has one. Every, every guy struggles with sin. And the antidote for the flesh is what? Galatians chapter 5. It's the spirit. If you live according to the Spirit, you won't give in to the flesh. How about Satan himself? What's, what's the anecdote? What's the defense against Satan? It's the Word of God. See, God has given us the answer to all three of these enemies, but we've got to tap into them. We've got to be part of the body. We've got to rely upon the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We've got to know the Word of God because what did Jesus Christ himself do in the wilderness when he was attacked by Satan himself? He used the Word of God. The Word of God is the greatest defense. See, when, when Satan whispers in your ear, and because he's the father of all lies, what does he do? Just like he did with Eve in the garden, he takes partial Scripture and he twists it and he tries to get you to do things that God would never want you to do. What's, what's the defense of that? Know the Scriptures. And be able to say, no, 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 that's not what God said. That's not what his word says. That's not the God I believe in. That's not the Christ I believe in. So these three things, these three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the enemy, Satan himself, are real, but we have a defense for them. And so what does he tell us? Well, Jesus says the enemy, Satan, is out to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his goal. That's his objective. He wants to kill you. If not physically, he wants to kill you emotionally. He wants to steal your joy, steal your witness, steal your effectiveness for the kingdom. He wants to destroy your witness in the community. And ultimately, he wants to destroy your life. He can't get your soul, but he, wants, he would love to eliminate every believer on this planet physically. But we're protected by God. He can't get my soul. He may kill me physically, but he can't, he can't kill me eternally. And that's what we have to think about. I can stand against Satan. Now, this is something you've got to be really careful with, guys. This, this is a doctrine I think gets really twisted off because this idea that we're to kind of go to war with Satan and we're to attack Satan, we're to stand. We're to, the, the passage says we're to resist we're, we're to stand against him, but 
it's a posture of defensiveness, not offensiveness. Where we, we go to war with Satan and we're going to, you know, just lash out at him and we're going to defeat him. And No, he's already defeated. We're just standing against the, the attacks. Ephesians talks about, you know, putting on the armor of God. And they're almost all, except for the sword of the Spirit, they're all defensive in nature. We're to stand firm in our faith. What's our faith? That we have a God who loves us, that we have a, a Savior who died for us, that we've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, that we have a future in store for us, and it is assured and nothing can ever change it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Stand firm in your faith and resist Him with the Word and confidence in God. See, we can stand against Him. And we can also recognize, he tells us in this passage, that we're, we're not alone. There are others who are suffering. There are people all over this world who are suffering far greater than you and I for the kingdom of God, for their, their witness, for their salvation. And yet we should find strength in that, that we're not alone. We can all stand together against the enemy. We're under attack, individually and corporately. So he closes with this. And, and I want to wrap up this whole series with these two statements that he makes, starting in verse 11. And it's part of a kind of a doxology that he, he closes this letter with. And it's not unlike what Paul does. He says, to him, God, be the dominion forever and ever. Now, that's an interesting statement. Why? Why would he say that? To him, God, be the dominion forever. Does Peter need to say that for that to be true? Isn't God's dominion forever and ever anyway? Isn't God sovereign? Isn't he in control? Isn't he provident and providential over anything and everything? Yes. So why is he saying this? Then he goes on and says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Why does he say that? Why is he talking to these people? Well, first of all, they're, they're struggling with suffering. So he says, peace, have peace. I think these two things are, are directly related together. And here's why. Why does he talk about dominion? Is he wishing something to be true? Oh, if God could just be in charge. Oh, God, if you would just wake up and do something about all the stuff going on. No, he's not wishing for anything. He's stating something that's already true. And he's telling it to these people. Have you ever prayed and your prayer is less directed at God than it is to the people that you're with? Now, sometimes that can be wrong. Sometimes it's appropriate because you're making a statement to remind those who are listening to you pray about a reality that's true in Scripture. I think that's what he's saying. To God be the dominion forever and ever. Why is he saying that at the end of this letter? Because he's reminding the people reading this letter that God is in control. He's in charge. It's true. You can rely on it. You can rest in it. He's all-powerful. He's in control even now. See, there are Christians all over this country right now who are in a panic. Liberals Christians, and there are liberal Christians, and conservative Christians. They're all in a panic about what's going to happen to this world. They're worried. They're anxious. And he says, your God is in control even now. If it gets worse he's in control. If it gets better, he's in control. See, we need to hear this. We need to understand that God is in control. He has dominion over everything and everyone. And that should produce what? Peace. 
Where does peace come from? Peace doesn't come from your bank account. Peace doesn't come from whoever gets elected. Peace doesn't come from legislation. Peace comes from God, the God of peace. And peace, even in the midst of suffering. Because again, what's the issue here? What's the context here? They're suffering. They need to be reminded, your God is in control. He's all-powerful. You don't need to worry. You don't need to panic. If you suffer and you worry, take all those worries given to God, and that should produce peace. We should be a people of peace right now. No worries. No anxiety. Because what did Jesus tell you and I? I am leaving you with a gift, he says to the disciples, a gift, peace. What kind of peace? Peace of mind and peace of heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. You will never get the peace you're looking for from the world. You won't. You won't get it from any elected official. You won't get it from any amount of money that you can get. You won't get it anywhere but from him. And so he says, so don't be troubled and afraid. I'm giving you a gift. I'm giving you the gift of salvation, which should bring you peace. Because what comes with the gift of salvation? The assurance of glorification, heaven. Everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be fine. You know, when I did this, this funeral this last week, you know, I can, I can stand in front of people, and I can, when I know the person who has died is a believer in Jesus Christ, I can stand up in front of them with confidence and say, we can mourn, but we don't mourn as people without hope. Why? Because we know where she is. And we know if we're in Christ, we're going to see her again. I know that's true of my dad. I'm going to see him again. I'm going to see my grandparents again. I'm going to see every... I'm going to see Mike Matthews someday. I'm going to see every saint who I've ever known, who I miss dearly, who has gone on to be with the Lord, I'm going to see them again, and that should bring me peace. I know where they are, and guess what? I'm going to the same place, no matter how bad things get on this earth. Dominion brings peace. So here's your, here's your discussion, guys. This first one's going to be a little bit uh, transparent. Using a scale of 1 to 10, if you're not sure how that works, ask the guy next to you. Rate and discuss the level of your peace right now. I want you to be brutally honest. One being you're severely depressed. Ten is you're surprisingly peaceful. Almost to the point if you think maybe I'm just stupid. Um, what's, your, what's your, where are you on that scale? What I want you to talk about is where's your peace coming from? Is it, is it you're just so burned out of the election you really don't care anymore? Or do you have peace because of God? Let's talk about that. Number two, of, of your three adversaries, the world, the flesh, and the enemy, which one do you struggle with the most and why? Which one's the hardest for you? And they're all interrelated. I know this is a kind of a trick question, but that's your second one. Finally, why is the reality of God's power, his dominion, and our future glory, glorification, so important for us to remember at this point in history? Why is this message so important right now? God's in control, and you have a future. Why is that important? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these guys. Thank you for the, the last 10 weeks as we've made our way through this uh, seemingly tiny book that is so full. And I pray, Father, that this morning as we talk about these issues of our fear, our lack of peace, um, our need to concentrate on your power, your dominion, your authority, and our, the reality of our future glorification, Father, that these things would not just be academic, 
that they would become a reality for us, that we could live with people who have hope, who trust you, who take all our worries and cares and give them to you, who live obediently, even knowing that we're going to suffer for it, who understand that we have enemies out there. We have Satan himself. We have the world. We have our own flesh. And yet, Father, we can stand firm in the faith. And our faith rests in the fact that Jesus Christ came, he died, he rose again, he ascended on high, and he's coming back. And may we live with that in mind, Father, every day of our lives. Thank you for these men. Bless their time around the tables. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have fun, guys.